Take your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 1, as we start our new series here. You may not know, I have a scheme, there's a method to the madness, there's a lot of madness and a little bit of method. I do long book followed by two short ones, and I go old, new, old, new, old, new, old, new. So that way you get a long Old Testament book and then a long New Testament and a long and old. So we're going to handle 1st, 2nd, 3rd John as that short new, and then we're going to Exodus. Yeah, it'll be fun. Get to hear plagues and ground-eating people and all kinds of neat things. It'll be lots of fun. Um, But 1st John, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 4 today. This is the Word of God. It was written a long time ago. But you should know it's written for you, and God had you in mind when he wrote it. In the Spirit, this is God's Word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. Life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would speak from heaven. And we would hear you have promised to speak through your spirit and through the word. And here we have both. We have read your scriptures And we have your spirit residing within us in our effectual calling. And so we ask that we would hear. Lord, we don't need to hear another earthly message. We have plenty of those. We need to hear from heaven. And so we ask that you would speak and we would hear. For Christ's sake, amen. You ever wonder what kind of historical figures would think about the world today? Like, what would it be like today if Paul were roaming around Fort Mill? What would he look like? What would he act like? What would, what would his ministry be? Would it be the same thing? Going to different towns and preaching at the synagogues? Well, probably not that because we don't have them. What would it be like? Or what would it be like if Joan of Arc were around today? I mean, what would she be like in a, in a world that looks like ours? So we, we love those kind of historical questions, don't we? To think of these people kind of anachronistically picked up out of their own time and placed in ours. It's a great question. There's no good answer to it. And it's had all kinds of different ways. Would Babe Ruth be a good baseball player today? I mean, the answer is obviously no, but uh, it's an important question to ask and one that sports radio has argued about all the time. Is LeBron better than Michael Jordan? 
That great movie, that great piece of culture, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, the same concept of uh, historical... Yeah, I should get a chuckle. It's a terrible movie. You should watch it, actually. (laughs) Historical figures ripped out of their time and placed in today. This idea, we love to have that idea of one era interacting with another. First John, second John, and third John, in many ways actually are that. You know, John is the youngest of all of the men that were right around Jesus. He's the one who lives the longest, mainly because he's not martyred and dies at a young age like many of them. Uh, But he also, his ministry is the longest running. We think this book, conservative scholars think 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written between 90 and 95 A.D., I mean, put that in contrast, 2 Corinthians that we're talking about at Bible study is in that 56 range. Right? I mean, that's a long time, major time difference. John is the last of the ones to die. The young man that he mentors is a guy named Polycarp, who lives to be about 100 of his own, right? Dies at 100 AD as an old guy. But uh, Polycarp is the, the bridge between the apostles and all of the early church historians and theologians that we know. He's the guy who interacts with Justin Martyr or the other guys, the early uh, church authors. And it's interesting because this book, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, these books, in so many ways are kind of a commentary on what happened in the Gospels and in the book of Acts and in the pastoral epistles, but removed by two generations. I mean, this is an old man. Right? He's an old-timer. I mean, sorry if you are the old-timer in the room. He's one of you. And it's like an old grandpa, great-grandpa, really, writing to the church. It's not addressed to any one specific person. It's kind of addressed to the church as a whole, saying, me as your great-grandpa, here's what I see about the church, and here's what you need to think about. The other fun way to kind of think about this is, in many ways, John doesn't think like everybody. He's an artist, which is part of why I wanted to do this shortly after doing the book of John, because I'm not an artist. In fact, actually, if we were to rank all of us in here on creative and artistic ability, I would be last. John is so opposite of me. He speaks in themes and in colors. He speaks in ideas and in visions. He's not ordered. He's not entirely logical and he's very complicated. In fact, actually, commentators have little bits of hissy fits over these few verses because of the grammar is so convoluted that it's hard to exactly figure out what he's saying. In fact, actually, if we were going to look at this, and normally I try to go kind of start all the way to end, that wouldn't really work because the verb isn't at the beginning. In fact, actually, the verb isn't in verse 1. Oh, it's not in verse 2. The verb doesn't really show up until verse 3. We proclaim to you. 
You see, part of what John is dealing with is it's the closing of the apostolic proclamation. And we have to think about what the apostolic proclamation would have been. It's significant because it's very different. You see, we, when we interact with the faith, we interact with it through this. You don't come to the faith through me. You come to the faith through the book. My sermons are structured on the book. I try to explain the book. The ministry of this church is about the book. We teach the book. We pray the book. We sing the book. Did you catch that? We already sang Psalm 139. That was our first song. Our prayer was on Psalm 10. My sermons on 1 John 1, 1 through 4. It is a church of the book. But in this time, there's a, a transition taking place because uh, the Jews have been a people of the book, but it was the Old Testament book. And it was promises that pointed forward and forward and forward, and then Jesus shows up. And they have to kind of reorganize and recategorize their brain. What do we do now that Jesus is here? And suddenly a new portion of the book shows up. And they begin to write and transcribe what's taking place. And the Spirit speaks through godly men to tell the rest of the story. And so when John here speaks, he's not just saying, look, hey guys, I've got a good heartwarming message for you. He's not just saying, hey, you know what? I've got a way to improve your life and make you enjoy your world a little bit better. He's not saying, you know what? I have seven things that if you implement, your life will be more enjoyable. You see, what he's saying in this apostolic proclamation is, you need to hear from heaven and you're about to do so. When he speaks, he's speaking on behalf of God. He has the spirit within him. So he's about to proclaim truth to them that they desperately need to hear. And it's also shaped through the personality of a great grandpa who's not quite bound to the time that he's living in. I mean, you know how we kind of always joke. It's been, I think, a running gag for as long as I know of, of how older generations tend to constantly be irritated with younger generations. In fact, actually, I think that's probably part of the big marker of when you move from being a young person to middle age is when you start finding yourself irritated at the music and movies and culture they consume. When you're like, oh. I can't believe them these days. That's when you, you just need to go ahead and own it and say, I can't believe these kids these days and just admit you're in the older generation. And if I'm going to be honest, I'm turning that corner. Here is a man who has not just turned that corner. He's watched that generation come and go. And then the next one come and go. And then the next, I mean, you think this is being written quite likely 60 years after the resurrection. You need to hear truth today. The apostolic proclamation. And it's interesting. Okay, the apostle's going to speak for God. He's going to proclaim truth. What is he going to say? 
And parts of it in the book are interesting in the sense of things that you just wouldn't think about, that he's going to be answering a lot of questions that maybe we wouldn't think of and a lot that we would. Part of what he's going to talk about is Jesus. Well, I would expect that. Namely, because the false teachers have begun to realize that the whole thing of Christianity, it hinges on Christ. If Christianity is a you know, seesaw, a teeter-totter, the fulcrum, the middle point, the point that everything turns on is Jesus. If you get rid of him, the whole thing falls apart. He's going to deal with the issue of, am I a Christian? I don't know if I'm a Christian, and that's going to come up. It's great. He gives a, a good framework for thinking about, how do I think, how do I know if I'm a Christian? But here it's interesting as he turns specifically, as he opens the book to one specific thing. We proclaim something to you. We proclaim the truth. And he gives us, as John does as an artist, shades of what it is and not a clear explanation up front. Paul would say, we have proclaimed to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. It would be up front and very clear. John, the artist, doesn't do that. Like a good painting, it's a a shade of here and a shade of another color there and a shade of another color there. And when you stand up close, you're like, John, I have no idea what you're talking about, man. Like, I can't see it. You remember, if you're my age, you remember those uh, pictures from your childhood where you had to kind of cross your eyes and let your eyes go blurry. And then all of a sudden you're like, it's a three-dimensional ship that's coming at me. That's very much how John teaches. It's spectacularly not the way I think. And so he gives a list of qualifications of what the truth they proclaimed is. First, and we're going to note just some of these, it is truth that was from the beginning. Now this is intriguing. Here's the old timer. He's dealing with not just the like, you know, snotty-nosed little you know, new kids on the block. He's dealing with their grandchildren. He's lived so long. It's 60 years more or less after the resurrection of Christ. And what is he saying? Look, this truth that you're interacting with, it's not just any truth. It's not a new truth. It's not a, a new lesson for a new day. This is the truth from the very beginning. It's one story that has continued from the very beginning. In fact, actually, it started before time. It goes back to when the only thing that was in existence was not space, was not time, was not energy, it was not matter, it was God himself. And the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed to themselves that God himself would create that people would fall and he would redeem them from the very beginning. So much so that as he speaks creation into existence, it is all good. And then he creates Adam from the dirt and Eve from a rib of Adam, but he gives them genuinely free will. Meaning they're not robots. They're not automatons that just do whatever their programming is. He makes them with such spectacular power that they can make decisions and those decisions can actually have real consequences. And a short time later, Eve listens to the devil 
and she falls because she is deceived. Adam, not being deceived, intentionally falls and death reigns. It's important to get. It's from the very beginning. It's the same story. The story never changed. It was a plan for God to redeem for himself a people. And the curse comes in in chapter 3. And when it comes in, it's damning, it's destroying, it's problematic. But even hidden at the very end is that great promise of the gospel. That God would be responsible for salvation. Because Eve certainly wasn't strong enough. And Adam certainly wasn't strong enough. And their children certainly weren't strong enough. So God would have to provide. And you follow throughout the entirety of the scriptures. And it's one story. It's the story of how God redeems his people. How in the flood he kills all of his enemies but preserves just a portion that belonged to him and they begin to make more children and people spread. It's a story of how he pulls for himself one out of the midst of them, Abraham, to be his own, to have other children, to become his people. It's a story of how he tells them the promises of Jesus pointing forward and forward and forward in various ways through sacrifices, through offerings. It's that which is from the beginning. So when Jesus shows up, it's not like he's a new man on the scene. It's not like he's a new kind of part of the plan of redemption. It's been the plan all along. And the truth that you engage now has been part of the plan all along. There's no chronological snobbery here. There's no sense in which we're smarter than everybody else. We finally have it figured out. We're part of the same plan. We're part of the same people. Our people have been here since Adam and Eve. And this plan that God has done from the beginning, now he clarifies as something spectacular in that it is that which we have heard and we have seen with our eyes and we have looked upon and touched with our hands. This plan of redemption has actually taken place inside creation. It's tangible. It's real. This is uh, already starting to wrestle with those false teachers. They were struggling with who Jesus was. Was he God? Was he man? Was he both? Was he neither? Who is Jesus? Was he Superman? Was he a Greek God? Is he Thor? Who is Jesus? And notice he's highlighting it's from the beginning. He's, He's God's plan because he is God, but he has stepped inside creation. Was he genuinely human? Yes. Is he genuinely human? Yes, even now he's human. And so much so that John can say, look, I heard him. I saw him. I touched him with my hands. Even after the resurrection, I know he lives because my experience even further confirms the word of God. 
And this story, that from the beginning, that which he has experienced is that of a story of life concerning verse 1 there and concerning the word of life. And then all of verse 2 is just simply a commentary on what that means, life. The life was made manifest. Again, we saw it. We're testifying to it and proclaiming to you even now eternal life. That which was with the Father and made manifest was Jesus. This life is the story of, cre- of Christianity that you don't have to be an enemy of God. That you don't have to be under the judgment of God. That you don't have to live as an object of wrath. As Paul says, we too were once children of wrath. You see, this is the heart of what Christianity is. It's life, and it's life in Christ, and then it's life in the body of Christ so that we may live anew in a world that's filled with death. You see, this is, I think, actually the heart of what uh, our great country is wrestling through right now as we debate nationally kind of what are we going to do with firearms? What are we going to do with schools? What are we going to do in our culture? It's honestly, it's not really a debate over guns or schools or safety or abortion. It's a debate over death. What are we going to do with death? Can we beat it? Can we conquer it if if we legislate carefully enough? Which is kind of comical coming from our government, but that's a different story. If If we legislate carefully enough, can we conquer death? Well, no, only thing that offers victory over death, the only thing that genuinely offers life is Christ and his church. This is the content of Christianity that from the very beginning, God has set aside for himself a people And he shares with them life. No, I mean, that's neat and all, right? I mean, this is the point in the sermon where you're like, I mean, man, that preacher's really excited about something a bit odd. (laughs) Fair enough, I am that guy. That's fair. But I love how John kind of, again, great pastoral wisdom, great grandpa here, uh, goes, no, 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 I understand people. (laughs) This is the truth of Christianity, but let me be sure to explain why it's important. And we're going to see three things that he gives here, very end, very quickly, why this is important for you. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So the proclamation of the truth of the gospel in Christianity, and it's designed specifically so it accomplishes three things for you. So that you too may have fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our or your joy may be complete. First, what's the the end result is that you get to have fellowship with us. That we as, as a people of God are knit together into the body of Christ. We are one body and we are designed to have fellowship. We have family. Now again, for some of us, we've grown up in homes with a a strong sense of family, where mom and dad were wonderful people that took good care of us. They're still married, you know, families knit together, brothers and sisters. For that, this promise doesn't quite have the same emotional punch for us. 
But for those raised in broken homes or with broken marriages or with broken children or with broken family or with broken insides, it is important to understand that part of the promise of Christianity is that God will place you in a home and the home He has placed you in is the church. Again, we were joking about this Thursday at Bible study, but you talk about the blessings in, in eternity, and it says that you know, we take the promise He's got a mansion prepared for each of us. And we read that in the most American fashion, which is the idea that I have a gigantic house away from all of you loonies. Right? That, that's how we read that promise, and that's tragically incorrect. Because the way that promise is written in the early context is that I have my own suite in the mansion of God where we all live together. I'm not taken away from you for salvation. I'm actually bonded to you for salvation. You see, that's part of the key element of what God's redeeming work is, is to knit the people of God together so that every tribe and every tongue and every nation and people from every skin tone with every eye color, left-handed, right-handed, all of us together will be knit together as God's people. So that we are never alone. I reference often Tom and I's prayer time on Friday mornings. One of the prayer times we have this Tuesday, we will have brunch with the Golden Oldies, name change to Go-Getters, but I'm still trying to influence the Golden Oldies. But one of our prayers is that that time would be something that the Lord uses to combat the loneliness that so often shows up in old age. That as children or great-grandchildren or whatever are taken away and moved to other parts of the world, that God would use the church to fulfill that longing for Christian fellowship so that we understand we're not alone because we've been placed in a home and the home is the church. But as if that weren't good enough right there, look, you have instantaneous family. You join the church. You have a family knit together. But he continues to say, not only are you joined to your friends, your family, the people of God, you're joined with God himself. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We get to be in relationship with the Trinity so that he is our Father and we are his children. And again, to think about this reality in the world in which we live. In a world and a time in which people struggle for meaning in new and spectacular fashions. In a new and a time where people struggle to feel something because we feel so much, we feel numb and dead inside. We have a promise that we may know the Trinity and we will be God's adopted children. I mean, how does that feel in the morning when you wake up and say, today I face the day as an adopted child of the Most High. Out of all of the billions of people that have lived and however many more are going to live, I don't know. We still could be in the early church for all I know. Out of all the billions of people that will ever live, maybe trillions, maybe quadrillions, who knows however many, he picked me to be brought into his home, to be 
made his child and to be given all of the rights and privileges that a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God would be given. I'm given his resources, I'm given his love, I'm given his affection, I'm given an open ear, an open line to the king of kings, I'm given the family of God, I'm given the status of a child. No longer do I need to think of myself as alone or isolated. No longer do I need to see myself as broken and fragile primarily. I'm a child of the king. I belong to the creator of heaven and earth. He's purchased me with the blood of his son. And then lastly, uh, purpose. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Your Bible probably has a little footnote next to our. And you've heard me talk about this in the past in Sunday school, never really in a sermon because it doesn't really matter. Uh, we, have, we don't have the original handwritten copies of the scriptures. We have copies of copies of copies. And most of the time, we are with 99.9999999% sure we know exactly what they say. But every once in a while, we get a little hiccup, a little uh, f- you know, smudge where we can't exactly tell. And this is one of those. We can't tell if John says our joy or if he says your joy. And I think that's actually a perfect mistake to have. Because what's the point that's being made either way? (laughs) Look, all of this is for our good. It's so that we will rejoice and enjoy the lives that God has given us. It's so that we're not these mopey, depressed, inside out, upside down, terribly sad sort of critters constantly forever. But that as we proclaim the truth of God and are knit together as a family of God and knit together to the Lord God himself, our joy will be increased and completed. I also love the idea of the terribly old man sitting off miles removed from anything kind of important happening, writing a letter saying, Look, you want to make our joy complete. Proclaim the truth. Believe the truth. Be transformed by the truth. And joy will make us whole. Now, so very quickly apply that in terms of how do we live differently in light of this. I think it's safe to say that many in this room are those that are marked by sadness. We live in a time where depression is rampant. Where isolation is rampant, the more technology we have, the less we feel connected. Only the gospel is the solution. That we may be knit together to the people of God and to the Lord Himself. May it be that we interact with God's truth and believe it so that our joy too may be made complete. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the church. We thank you that you have chosen to use it to place those without a home in a home. And thank you that you have given us such a diversity. Young and old, babies and the very old. Here we have a very old man writing to us that we may believe in you. Forgive us for our sins. Fill us with your spirit. Give us belief in King Jesus, we pray. For his name's sake, amen.